And today we're going to talk about Rahab's rope and Rahab's hope, a very certain hope in a very certain God. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word with great expectation. Yes. We believe that you are alive in your word and that your word lives in us whenever we open and receive it. We read your word today desiring to learn more and also, Lord, to live more for you and to allow more of your life to live and shine through us. These things are only possible because of you, but in you, they really happen. And so we believe that you hear our request and you answer it, even in our time of teaching today, in Jesus' name, amen. Joshua chapter 2 is where we're at in this third of our series on the Joshua generation, looking at not only the man Joshua, but the nation of Israel under his leadership in that era. It was a new era, a new season, a time of transition, as we've talked about. The book of Joshua is focused not only on the transition from Moses to Joshua, but from the Mosaic generation to the Joshua generation, and a fresh new season in the Lord. Will you say that phrase, fresh new season? You said it with such enthusiasm, who could, nobody could hold you back. A fresh new season. <laughs> sounded like you said it right as you were about to take a nap, which may be what you have in mind, but I'm going to try and shake you out of that. A fresh new season is something to get fired up about, something to get excited about. And let me tell you, PCF, it's a fresh new season that the Lord has for us in a year of fruitfulness and looking forward to great harvest. And whoever you are, wherever you are hearing this message today or whatever day you're hearing or reading it, I want to say... This message says to you, it's time for a fresh new season in Jesus Christ for you. It's available for all who are willing to receive. The focus of Joshua also deals with occupation. Not only transition from generation to generation, but occupation of that generation into the promised land. Going in and occupying the territory that has been promised by the Lord. It's a literal reality for the Joshua generation of the Bible. It is a spiritual reality for us today. It is an ancient promise of the Lord. And that promise is this. If you will seek me, you will find me. If you will call on my name, I will save you. If you will trust me and give your life to me, I will trust you with my life, says the Lord. It's an ancient promise, but it's available today, and it's waiting for people to enter in. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door knocking, and he's saying, Whoever will open the door, I come in. That's an ancient promise, but it's awaiting your answer today. If you're a believer, there's some part of your heart that can open deeper to Jesus today, some place where he's going, How about this room? How about in here? You know when the doctor comes and taps on your chest? and finds out how things are going on inside of you. The great physician Jesus comes and says, what do I hear here? What's, in, what's going on in here? And if you'll open up and say, doctor, you tell me. Here I am. Heal me. He's there for you. But if you say to him, physician, heal thyself, you're without a doctor. You're without a hope. You're without help. It's an ancient promise of God, but it's ready and available for us to enter into today. But when we do that, there are things that have to be battled. Sometimes those doors are locked. Jesus has the keys to open them, but we have to battle sometimes within ourselves, battling with our own flesh and battling in the spirit realm. There are demons and darkness in this world, make no mistake about it, and their sole interest is to divert and destroy the works of God. They're not successful in that in any permanent way. But you and I have a part to play. Just like the Joshua generation were called to enter into the land of promise and fight battles, so you and I are called to fight battles in the spirit. Not with flesh and blood, not with people per se, but with spiritual 
entities, powers and principalities. We have the keys of the kingdom. The gates of hell cannot stand against that. And if that's something that sounds good to you, that's part of the promise of Jesus Christ for all of his people. But it requires obedience. The only way that we can enter into the promised land and actually achieve those victories that God has already arranged is if we follow him, if we follow his lead and follow his word. But when we do, there is a sure and available reward for all who will trust in him. These are the themes of the book of Joshua. These are the promises to the people of the Joshua generation. And the promise is first and foremost visible to them in the very land itself the promised land. This is the promised land. Israel, as we know it today, and at that time, Canaan. Now, you'll recall from our series that the book of Joshua describes three distinct military campaigns by which the people of Israel claim the territory that God has ceded to them. Today, we begin in the first of those campaigns, the central campaign, that is the military conquest of the central regions that occupies a good bulk of the first half of the book of Joshua, the chapters 2 to 9. We're in chapter 2 today, and so we're starting with the very first city that the Lord is going to have them focus on. And it's a significant city in the ancient world. In fact, it's a significant city due to its history in the world today, and it's a city called Jericho. We're going to be talking about Jericho quite a bit in coming weeks, and I'm actually going to reserve um, the bulk of my commentary about Jericho for a future message that we'll come to in later chapters and six and so on when, they deal, when we deal with the entry of, of Israel into Jericho. Today we're looking at the first uh, espionage trip into Jericho, two spies that are sent by Joshua to find out what the status is in the land and particularly in Jericho. Do you know that Jericho is quite possibly the oldest, longest consecutively inhabited city in human civilization? It goes back many, many millennia, far before recorded history. The archaeological record indicates that there has been an established city or town in the area that we know as Jericho going back for thousands upon thousands of years. And one of the things that that city is most known for you can imagine there are many things that it would be known for, commerce and the uh, social development that occurs in a city like that, that would make it stand out. Perhaps even during various eras, it had some significant wealth. But one thing that it marked it quite distinguishably is its magnificent fortified walls. In fact, the archeological record reveals long history of multiple networks of walls, quite, um, quite impressive uh, structures at various eras that were built around the city of Jericho. Today, we don't think of walls around a city the way it has been thought of for thousands and thousands of years. But even if you go to Europe and travel through the ancient cities of Europe or the older cities of Europe, next to America, everybody feels old, I guess, you will find that there are lots of ramparts and not just like the rampart that we have down the street, but ramparts that you can actually see and walk upon. And so it is that Jericho was a city with such ramparts, with such bulwark, with such huge, wide walls. And the woman that we are looking at today, the woman named Rahab, actually lived in the wall. That's how wide that wall is, that it could afford the placement of a house and actually probably houses. 
the walls were almost like the way we would think of as fortified uh, uh, apartment complexes, that there were living domiciles in these walls. You can imagine how wide a wall would have to be. And you can imagine that if it was going to keep out armies, which was the intent of ancient cities, the walls were built to keep the city safe, safe from thieves and robbers, safe from wild animals, but most significantly, especially as society progressed, to keep cities safe from other army forces. That these walls would have to be very high. And so the walls of Jericho were huge, daunting. Other nations, and at that time a city was essentially a city-state, so that even other cities in the region would be thought of as neighboring nations or tribes, would look at those walls and think, if you're going to try and take any place, don't try and take Jericho, because Jericho will stand, because Jericho's walls are strong. That's the kind of thing that the Lord calls us to come and face. Big high walls, thick, broad, and strong, and they're populated with powers that are ready to cut us down and keep us out. But the Lord says, if you'll follow me and trust in me, I can open a broad way in any wall. Amen. Well, not only are the walls broad and wide, and not only is the way of the Lord broad and wide that he will open through it, but the name Rahab means broad. It means wide. And interestingly enough, in the same way, although this is purely coincidental, that the term broad can have both the sense of strength and wide openness, and also a derogatory and sort of misogynistic connotation, there is something in Rahab's story about that as well. Because lest we forget, something is very prominently mentioned about Rahab. What she did for a living. She was a prostitute. Let me ask you, have you ever gotten help from an utterly unexpected source? Help came to you in a moment when you desperately needed it from a place or a person that you would least have expected it. Yes. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. And you recognize if you're a person of faith or you're willing to be, and you can recognize now, that however that help came, wherever or whoever it came through, the reality is if it was real help and good help, it was of God. But sometimes God uses unexpected sources. Amen. So... Consider that as one plank of three that I want to talk to you about. One, one paradigm, one model, one example. Help that comes from an unexpected place. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought that you couldn't be the person that God would use to help someone else? In other words, have you ever disqualified yourself from being the one who might be the agent of God, the representative of God, because you think, well... I know God uses some people that way, but not me. I wouldn't be like that. I was talking with a friend this week, a very devout man in the Lord, and he was sharing about a pivotal moment in his life. I won't go into the specific details of it, but suffice it to say, he was of the persuasion up to that point in his life. He was a, he was a real believer. He was a strong believer. He was in many ways a mature believer, but he was of the persuasion that the spiritual giants in his life, people who had mentored him, great preachers and authors that he had read or followed, um, people that he knew of who had accomplished great works for the Lord, that, that God used people like that. You know, the Billy Grahams, the Jack Haffords, people like that. God uses those people. But he himself thought, I couldn't be used like that. God wouldn't want to use me like that. I shouldn't be used like that. I'm not worthy of that. I'm not a candidate for that. That's a reality of our thinking 
that is a wall. And it can be broad and wide. And block off the light of not only the love of the Lord, but the power of God to work through us. God wants to come and blow a hole wide open in that wall and say, I want to use you. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, there's nothing that disqualifies you from being available to the grace of God if you are willing to put your trust in him and your life in his hands. He will use you. Sometimes help comes to you from an unexpected place. Sometimes God wants you to be the unexpected source of his help to someone else. There's a third thought, which is maybe... Even if we think that God could use us that way, we think we've been disqualified by our background, by our history, by what we've done, or maybe by what's been done to us. And I think in looking at a historical episode, real events that really happened on this earth with real people, and seeing that one of the critical figures is a woman who's a prostitute, there is a message of hope for us in that. That if you will be honest with God about where you're at and what you need, God will be powerful in bringing about revelation in your life and transformation in your soul. Rahab's rope is a story about a certain hope. It's her hope in a certain God. Not just any God. Not one of the many, many gods that she as a Gentile woman, as a Canaanite pagan woman, would have been raised to believe in her whole life but rather the very certain singular God of all the earth, the one who is God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, who Rahab recognized was the God over all. Her hope was in him. And in that, she was finding unexpected grace. A woman like Rahab would have been raised to believe, first of all, as I mentioned, that there were many different gods, gods of mountains, gods of certain stars, gods of the sun, god of the moon, god for animals, god for rivers, god for walls and warriors. But to believe that there's one God who is Lord God of all, maker and creator of heaven and earth, who made all people and who holds the destiny of all people and all things in his hands, that is a totally unique concept in world history innovated by the covenant of God with Israel. It was something that was immediately evident to humanity from the very beginning, but was washed away from memory by the falsehood of the enemy and the lie of idolatry. And even to this day, there are people that would try to deny it. But for Rahab, part of her obstacle in believing in such a God would be that she was also raised to believe that gods of other nations could not or would not honor people from other tribes, especially if there was any kind of opposition between those nations. So as a Canaanite woman, as a, as a native, presumably, of Jericho, she would have been likely to believe that the God of Israel, even if he was all-powerful God of all the earth, would only be against her, would only be opposed to her. It seems to us perhaps strange to think that, but may I pause and bring to our recollection this reality There are many people, and maybe some of us even in the room have grappled with this, who think that God is against them, who feel like God doesn't like them, who suppose that God doesn't want them, or who think that they have done something which invalidates them in the eyes of God. But Rahab realizes that if she will call upon this God, there is the reasonable hope that he will show her unexpected grace. And 
she figures that she better activate that faith, that she better put her money where her mouth is, so to speak, that she better actually do something if she believes that, not only to expect unexpected grace, so to speak, that is to count on it or to call for it, but also to show it. And so Rahab, the prostitute Canaanite, becomes a place of grace for the spies of Israel. She provides cover and protection for those two men that are sent to spy out the land. Enemies, presumably of her, but she treats them like family and friends. And in doing so, she becomes part of the family of God because of God's unexpected grace and because of her strong faith, a faith in which she confesses God's undeniable word. She says, I know, not just I believe or I think, but I know that your God is God, and I know that judgment is coming because I can see how he has moved through you. I can see his favor upon you as his people, and I can see the judgment that has come upon those that oppose you. Do you realize that when you and I are walking in faith in the Lord, and the Lord is using our lives to declare his glory, people are seeing how God works through us. But the same is also true. If we don't live our lives in that obedient point of faith, then our lives demonstrate something else. And we fail to be a reflection of the image of God. And we become a reflection of something far, far worse than we would ever hope. But by confessing God's undeniable word and trusting in it and living under the sign of his blood and his call, we can live in freedom and live with hope. A hope that doesn't disappoint because it trusts in his unwavering power. The spies of Israel found unexpected grace in an unexpected place in that prostitution brothel run by Rahab. But Rahab also found the grace of God in confessing his word. And together there was a demonstration of God's unwavering power that ultimately brought about the promise of the land being put into the hand of the people of God. Let's look a little bit deeper at each of these three sections of Joshua 2. Finding God's unexpected grace often entails going into the place that stretches us, that threatens us, that requires us to risk something and sometimes requires us to risk everything for God. God regularly calls his people into situations like that. You know, we shouldn't be surprised by that. The scripture says that through many sufferings and trials, we enter into the kingdom. So also, when the spies are sent into the land, they are going into a place of risk and danger where they cannot protect themselves. They're going to be dependent upon God's protection. God likes to put us in places like that because he likes to remind us of how much we need him. Do you know that one of the greatest blessings that God gives to his people is the awareness of how much we need him? Do you know that one of the worst things that people in the world suffer and often don't even know that they suffer, and sadly sometimes even people in the church needlessly suffer, is that they don't know how much they need God. What a glorious thing it is to know that I need God to the uttermost, that I can do nothing apart from Him, that I'm utterly dependent upon Him. As I've said before, some people like to criticize Christianity by saying it's a crutch, and I say it's not only a crutch, it's a cross. It's not just something you have to lean on, it's something you die on, but you rise again. It's a resurrection power. Now that's something that nobody can achieve on their own. 
But the grace of God brings us to the place where our dependence reveals his divinity. His grace is sufficient for us and his strength is perfected in our weakness. And often his strength comes to us in unlikely and unexpected ways. In so doing, he reveals himself to the whole world. And something else we can learn from Rahab is this reality. She wasn't born into the nation of Israel. She wasn't born into the covenant. She was brought into it, just like you and I were. And she was one who was not raised in an environment where she was taught the word or taught these things. But she had two eyes and two ears and a heart and soul within her that recognized, as every human being can and must, that we are here for a reason that we are created, that there is a creator, and that that creator is good and God and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But to reject that God is to reject life. Rahab knew that, and every human being does. Some people live in denial of it. Some people want to deny it, and some people are so deluded or so injured by the reality that they live in, that it's difficult to impossible for them to perceive. But what is impossible for people is possible for God. Nevertheless, there is a humility of heart that is called for. If we are to be people who revere God, we must repent. We must relent. We must release ourselves into his hand. Rahab is a woman like that. Let's look at her story. Joshua sends two spies into the promised land in something of an echo of his own life. Remember back in the generation of Moses, Joshua was himself one of two spies who said, we can enter the land. Twelve spies that were sent in to the promised land by Moses to, to see what they could find, to carry out reconnaissance. Ten of the twelve said, it's a great place, but it's full of giants and walled cities and hardship. So no matter how fruitful and lush it is, we can't go in. But two were faithful, Joshua and Caleb. Perhaps when it came time for Joshua to send in spies, he figured if ten weren't faithful, two would be better. In any case, these two seem to be a sort of symbolic echo of Joshua and Caleb himself. They're not named in the passage, but they demonstrate the same kind of faith. They enter into the city and they go immediately to the house of a prostitute. Insert joke here, right? Now, there are commentators who very cynically say, oh, I see why they go to the house of a prostitute first. Sure. Two guys away from their wives, out of camp. The first place they go is to the house of a prostitute. I'm not trying to make light of something that is actually a very serious subject, quite obviously. Or I suppose I should say I am trying to make light of it, and I shouldn't, because it's serious. But let me say something to you about the Bible. The Bible doesn't hesitate to reveal us warts and all. When Moses got, excuse me, when, no, well, when Moses uh, killed a man, the Bible didn't hesitate to tell us about that. When Noah got drunk as a skunk and fell down naked, the Bible didn't hesitate to tell us that. In fact, in the days of Noah, when God looked at all the earth and said, in all of humanity, I see nothing but a wicked heart, the Bible didn't hesitate to tell us that. It told us when Cain killed his own brother Abel in cold blood, it told us uh, uh, about uh, the daughters of Lot who got their father drunk and slept with him in order to achieve children. The Bible is full of all kinds of uncomfortable and disquieting things. In fact, Judah, one of the great ancestors that, that precedes the incarnation of Jesus Christ, himself hired a woman at the side of the road, a prostitute, to sleep with her, who turned out to be his own daughter-in-law. And through that line came the Messiah, so the Bible, and that is to say God, does not hesitate to call a spade a spade. 
God does not hesitate to reveal infirmity in his people. He's quite honest about that. But what we see here is not that case. If these men were going there because they were looking for a good time, I think the Bible would tell us that. It's important for us to recognize the reality of the historical record. These men went to the house of a prostitute because it was strategic. For one thing, it should be noted that prostitutes in that time would often be synonymous with innkeepers. In other words, if somebody was going to run an inn, a place where wayfarers could stay, it was very common that such a place would also become an enclave for prostitution, especially in the Canaanite regions where there was a regular practice of prostitution that was even um, uh, elevated, if you will, in their religious practices. It may be worth mentioning also that though the Bible does not specify this, Rahab is not said to be married to any man at this point. In fact, the only time we hear of her having a husband is later in the scriptures, and later in the sermon I'll have more to say about that. But it's possible that in a context like Canaan, where women were very disadvantaged in very many ways. And without a husband, a woman had very few opportunities to earn any kind of livelihood. That Rahab may have been a woman with elderly parents and siblings who could not fend for themselves and that the only opportunity available to her with a home in the wall was to be an innkeeper. And a woman running an inn was expected to open more than just her door, if you'll forgive the bluntness of the statement. She may not have had much alternative. Now, that's not to excuse or defend something that probably weighed very heavily on her conscience and her soul, and no doubt took its toll upon her in any number of ways. But it is to recognize this, that there's more to her story than we know, but God knew it all. And God knows yours too. Amen. All the extenuating circumstances, all the injustices and hardships, all the failures and errors, and whether or not you or I are responsible for it, it can all come underneath the blood of Jesus Amen. Christ. So it was that the men would come to a place like this because, for one thing, a house of prostitution was a place where you could stay overnight. For another thing, nobody wants to be seen going in or out of a house of prostitution, which means it's secretive. Secret entrances, nobody's looking, everybody looks the other way. It's a good place for spies to come and not be found. It's also, frankly, frequently a place where military people could be found. Now, that's not to malign any military, and if you're part of the military here, you have our highest honor. But it is a sad fact that when men are away from home, houses of prostitution tend to find customers. And this is also something that may have been think in the thinking of the spies. They might be able to find somebody from the opposing military and learn something. If nothing else, prostitutes are often the recipients of secrets and may be able to pass some of those secrets along. So there was strategic purpose for the spies hiding out there. Nevertheless, someone shared something that pricked up the ears of the king, the leader of the city. It may be, it certainly wasn't Rahab, it may be that one of the other men who was frequenting the establishment got word back to the king. There are two guys, strange men, that are holed up in Rahab's place. And so the king sent a message to her. He sent men to her saying, bring those men out. There's two spies here in the land. We want to talk to them. But she says after having already hid them, oh yes, men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. And so at dusk, when it's time for the city gates to be closed, to keep the city safe at night, I sent them out. I don't know which way they went, but you know what? They didn't leave that long ago. If you leave right now and hurry, you might catch up with them. And in this way, Rahab gets the men out of her house quickly. Rahab's one smart cookie. They go out. They try and catch up. 
and the city gates are closed behind them. Meanwhile, the men have been hidden on the roof, which may be a reference to a second story, a second floor, kind of like an attic, which was used as storage in ancient Near Eastern homes, or may refer to the flat roof, which could also hold storage. In any case, the two spies are being hidden in sheaves of flax, that is, in bundles of wheat that have been brought in from the harvest, because this story takes place, this event occurred during the harvest, during the flaxen and barley harvest. I want to say it's wonderful to me to think of God's people being hidden in the fruitfulness of the very land that is promised to them. I want to say to you, BCF, to you who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are hidden in the fruitfulness of God, that the harvest of God is not only provision to you, but protection for you, a place for you to live and abide, to dwell and to be safe. Your enemies will not find you and you will partake of that very fruitfulness yourself. So she hid the men there. And once these pursuers are gone, she goes up onto the roof for a quiet conversation with these two men who obviously are going to have to leave soon. They have enough time to get some rest and then she's going to send them out. But she says to them, I know, will you say that? I know. I know know that the Lord has given you this land. Do you realize what she's saying? She's speaking her own death sentence. For a nation like Israel to come in and take the city of Jericho means the city of Jericho will be burnt to the ground and the people of Jericho will be killed. When she says, I know the Lord has given you this land, what she's saying is, I know judgment is coming on us. A great fear of you has fallen on us. Everyone who's living in this country is melting in fear because of you. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. So you can imagine how she's thinking, if the Lord parted the Red Sea for you, how much more will he part the Jordan, even at flood stage for you? He brought you out of Egypt. If he gave you victory over Egypt, how much more over Jericho? Jericho may have been a strong fortified city, but it was nothing compared to Egypt. You know, that, that, that's nothing. You killed and overcame the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. We've heard it all. And our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you. Remember how the Lord came to Joshua and the nation in Joshua chapter 1 that we've looked at over the last two weeks and said, you're facing obstacles, but be strong and have a good courage. Fear not. No one will be able to stand against you. Here now the Lord is revealing the alternate truth. Everyone else will be afraid of you because they're afraid of me. Because they know that my judgment is righteous and they see that my wrath is relentless. They know that my power is unwavering and they will see in you my favor on those who follow me. And indeed, that's what Rahab says. That's what she sees. The Lord, your God, is not just one God of many, not just a God of this place or that place, not even just the God of Israel. He is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. As it is in heaven, so it is on earth. His kingdom is coming. His will is going to be done. And Rahab recognizes it and in doing so, confesses the reality of it. So that it's not only just an expression of her expectation, but it is a confession of her faith. Sister Jennifer, I'm going to call upon you as our staff member. Can you help with that? The alarm has been set off because someone went out the wrong door. And that happens from time to time. That's um, an unexpected place. Thank you very much. Just think of it as one big happy cricket. 
So Rahab is confessing the reality of God's word, the, the assurance of his promise. Her recognition of his reality and of his sovereignty is an expression of faith. The cord that we're going to read about in a moment, the scarlet cord that gets put in her window, is not only a sign to the people, but a symbol of her faith. It's a sign because the people will need something to designate her home, but it's also something that puts her at some risk. Let's read about what this cord is, and I'll talk more about how it relates to her faith and ours. So Rahab is talking with the spies up on the roof, and she says to him, swear to me, because the Lord is giving you the land. Swear by your Lord, that God of heaven and earth, that you'll show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Again, Rahab is calling upon the Lord and expecting his unexpected grace, but she's also taking a step to marry her faith with action. And she's pretty smart. She figures, I'm going to show grace where it's not expected. You're my enemies, but I'm taking care of you. And because I've shown you that I believe in your God and that I'm willing to risk my life for yours, will you promise me on your life that you'll save mine? Give me a sure sign. Because men in such inns may promise things, but she wants an assurance that their word is going to count for something. She says, promise me by your Lord and give me a sign of it that you will spare our lives. In the Hebrew, it's literally that you'll spare our souls. You realize this is important. She's not just asking to save her skin. She's asking for the salvation of her soul. She recognizes that she is not worthy of this. And that's the humility of repentance. But she also realizes that God is good, and that's the sure hope of faith. Amen. And so they say, our soul's for yours. In other words, if your life is not safe, according to our word, then neither is ours. We would give our life for you, so long as you hold true to what you said. I want to I suggest that's the heart of a Christian. Our soul's for you. In other words, that you and I, as we are going through the world and encountering all kinds of people, and who knows what kinds of background they're from, but I don't suppose that anybody encounters anyone with a background any more checkered than an idolatrous prostitute, that you could say to that person, my soul for yours. I think of Paul who said, if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation for the salvation of my people. I don't think I've ever arrived at that point of sacrifice, but Jesus did. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He said, my soul for yours. And that's the heart that is in the spies who say, yes, if this is what's in you, we pledge our souls for yours. But you've got to not just say it, you've got to show it. Now, there's a practical reason why they say you have to put this cord in the window because if there's not that brilliant red rope in the window, it's not just the spies, but the entire army of Israel might not know which home is hers. The home has to be marked. The family has to be in that home. And they all have to be living under that covenant in order to receive that blessing. It's an evidence that puts her at risk. Not because anybody's necessarily going to know what that red rope means. It's clandestine. It's only the spies of Israel who are aware of this contract. But can you imagine if you're the prostitute in town, you probably get you know, the stink eye from people already to begin with. And then the king has sent men to your house because they think that uh, there might have been spies in your house. And then immediately the next day, a big red rope appears in your window. Kind of calls you out a little bit. Sort of puts you out there 
in a place of risk. But Rahab is apparently willing to face that risk because what she wants is to demonstrate the sign of her faith. She doesn't want the Lord not to see. In fact, there is in this an echo again of the blood of the Lamb on the lintels of Israel. In other words, that when the doorposts of Israel were covered with the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death passed over. Rahab is willing to put that rope in her window because she's looking for a Passover of her own. And the Lord of the Passover is going to give it to her. But there is something else that she needs to hang in the window first. Before she hangs the sign and symbol, she hangs the rope of hope. The rope that allows the men to actually crawl out the window onto that outer side of the wall and get out of the city to safety. She tells them, go to the hills, because that way your pursuers won't find you. She gives them a very biblical number. Over and over again, the number three shows up in the Bible. Whenever you see three in the Bible utilized in this kind of way, you can always see a kind of reflection of God in it. The Trinitarian God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is also the sense of the perfection of God's timing. That something needs to come to a completeness. Three days Jonah was in the belly of the whale before he was spit up on shore and sent to Nineveh for salvation of the pagan city because they repented in the same way that Rahab did. Three days Jesus Christ was in the belly of the earth and then resurrection. The third day is a resurrection day. The third day is a judgment day. The third day is a covenant day. The third day is a God day. Three days they're in the wilderness hiding out. Even as Joshua said to uh, the children of Israel in Joshua chapter 1, get ready, in three days we're going to enter into the land. So there's something about God's timeliness here. There's something to be recognized about getting ready. Now, today is the day to hang that rope, to show your hope, to make your confession of faith, because God is coming. Friends, Jesus is just on the other side of the Jordan. He's there with the assembled armies of heaven. And he's coming. You and I, we are called today to hang our hopes on him and to show what blood marks our covenant. So it is that the binding of the oath is made in relationship to the showing of this symbol. And it is not only a promise to Rahab, but to her household, to you and to your children and to all who are far off, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, quoting Joel. She agrees to this arrangement and says, let it be so, and she ties the scarlet cord in the window after they've gone. She's hanging her hopes on the God of Israel. If what she believes come, is going to come to pass doesn't come to pass, if Israel fails... The scarlet rope in her window becomes a scarlet letter on her chest. It becomes an indicator that she's a traitor. She'll be killed, almost certainly. She's risking everything because she believes that God is all in all. What do you and I hang our hope on? She's hanging it on faith, and we should too. Faith is the substance of what she's hoping for. It's the evidence of what she doesn't yet see, the unexpected expectation. In that same chapter of that very familiar verse of Hebrews 11.1, 1, we are told by the author of Hebrews, by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army marched around them seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, because she showed grace where she didn't have to, because of faith in a God that, that she believed in, even though she wasn't raised in, 
Because of that faith, she was not killed with those who were disobedient, but instead she enjoyed salvation. She's hanging on the word of God, that he's a God of his word, that he's a God of his promises. That's what you and I should hang on, on him. We should stand on his word and live in him. What sign does he want to hang in the window of our soul? She says, save my soul. And she has that scarlet cord to show she's believing in it. What shines through our lives? What do people see when they see us? What shines out of our face? What comes out of our mouth? What do our actions reflect? Do they reflect that the blood of Jesus Christ is over our life? That the cross of Christ is the symbol of who we are? People of sacrifice? People of grace? People who trust in the Lord and wash in his blood to be purified? Jesus said that the sign of our lives is not just saying, Lord, Lord, but showing fruit, fruit. The sign for Rahab was the cord in the window, the red rope. The sign in our lives, according to Jesus, is fruit of the Spirit, fruit that abides, fruit that remains. Jesus said, just because you say, Lord, Lord, to me, and come to me and say, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We performed miracles in your name. Jesus doesn't say they didn't do that. What he says simply is, I never knew you because there is not the sacrificial fruit of grace and help for others in their lives and not the hope in God that he is looking for. So Jesus says, everyone who hears my words and actually does them is wise. James goes on to say, you're not wise if you don't believe that your actions reflect your faith. Do you want evidence of that, says James? Take a look at Abraham. He proved his faith. He married his faith to action, if you will. He mixed it with action in order to perfect it by offering Isaac on the altar. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous, says James in James chapter 2? Righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different, different direction to protect them. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Say that with me. Faith without deeds is dead. If you and I suppose that we can make ourselves right through deeds, we have totally missed the point of what James is saying. There is no amount of deeds that can make us right with God. The reason that Rahab was preserved was not just because she offered a place to those men of safety, but because she did so out of her faith in God. But if her faith in God had not been enough for her to trust, to risk herself for those men, what James is saying is it wasn't really faith. So if it's really faith, there'll be real risk and there will be real reward. So you and I, we cannot earn God's favor through, faith, through uh, deeds, and we shouldn't even try. But what we should recognize is this. If our faith is real, it calls us to risk, and it will produce fruit. Real faith produces real fruit. That is the unwavering power of God, the Lord of the harvest. It requires us to not just say that we trust God. It's easy to say that we trust God. People do it all the time. But do our lives reflect it? Are there things that God is calling us to do that lead us right up to the wall and the obstacle, that put us in the heat of danger, that put us at the mercy of people like prostitutes? I simply mean to say people that you might not think of as worthy or reliable or trustworthy, but God might be saying, I want you to reach out to them. I want you, I'm not saying God's calling you to go to a prostitute. Please, no one mistake what I'm saying here. 
He's not calling you to frequent one as a business. He may be calling you, sister, to speak to one with the message of the truth. Hazel and I carried out a short-term mission to the city of Amsterdam, which is world-renowned for its prostitution. One of the great ministries going on there in that city that you may not be aware of is beloved sisters like you who go, and I say sisters because it's a ministry in which women to women minister for obvious reasons, especially if you've ever been to Amsterdam, you will realize that the visual assault of enticement is uh, profound and requires one to be wise And yet there are people caught in that place, trapped in the wall of it. And the Lord wants to send his people to liberate. There's real risks involved in that kind of ministry and others. But it's also the place where God's unexpected grace can flow through you. Remember, you're a candidate to show the truth to somebody. Men, you're a candidate. Brothers, there are people you can reach. Sisters, people you can reach with the truth of God. But there are risks, and it requires faith. And yet our faith is founded not on our own abilities, but on God's unwavering power. Those spies spend the three days, and then they come back to Joshua, and they say, we're ready to enter the land, because these people are afraid of us. We have the courage of God, because God is on our side. Surely the Lord has given the whole land into our hands, and their hearts are melting within them. But you know, For us today as modern believers, I want to remind you, we're not facing a physical battle against armies according to the call of Christ. We are facing spiritual forces of opposition. The enemy uses fear to break down the people of God. But God comes to his people and says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, neither be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Confess this word of his law in your mouth and none of those spiritual forces will be able to stand against you. I've given you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell cannot prevail against that. So you be strong. And the power is might. And recognize this. The enemy is afraid. The devil is afraid. He's angry because he knows the third day is coming. Because he knows his time is short. The devil is afraid of you. Not because you're strong, but because God is alive in you if you are a follower of God. And if you think, well, that doesn't make me want, want to be a Christian per se. Let me tell you this. I'd rather have the devil afraid of me than not. The devil doesn't have to be afraid of people that he's got his hooks into. They're his puppets. They're his slaves. But if the devil is afraid of you, you can rest assured he'll bring every fear against you. Therefore, don't stand in your own strength. Stand in God's unwavering power. And show that you're not afraid by helping others in need, by stepping out in faith, by putting yourself at risk, in order to fulfill the call of God. When we do that, God's power becomes most evident in our lives. Helping others is a demonstration of our faith. Rahab showed it. The spies showed it. Joshua shows it. Jesus, when he sent out the 12, he said, preach to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Israel is at hand, right? To The word to Jericho was, Israel is right here. Joshua and the commander of the armies of heaven is right here. So Jesus is saying, tell people the kingdom of God is right here, right ready to arrive. 
And everything that is built up here that is not of God is going to be brought down, no matter how impressively wide and big it is. But whoever right now would say, I repent in my heart of that relationship to that world. I would rather put my hope in you. You help them. Show them who Christ is. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. That's helping people. Boy, that's about as much help as you could ever get, right? The only thing more helpful than that is to say, not only have you been raised from the dead, but you've been empowered over it. You have eternal life. That's the kind of help that only Jesus Christ can give. But he wants you to tell people about it. You're the witness. And you'll show them by casting out demons and healing, by helping, by giving, by praying, by speaking, by encouraging, by being alongside. Freely, Jesus says, freely you've received, freely give. The spies recognized, we didn't earn this land. God is freely giving it to us. We were slaves. You're a prostitute in Canaan. We were slaves in Egypt. God delivered us. He'll deliver you. If you keep your trust in him, he will take care of you. They received freely. They gave freely. So the question for us to ask is, who can I help today? That's the heart of a Christian. Who can I help today in the name of the Lord? How can I help today in the spirit of the Lord, through the word of the Lord, by the power of the Lord? Say that, will you? Who can I help today? How can I help today? When you ask God that, he will show you. But it may require you to risk. And it may make you stretch. Go ahead and stretch. Open up your door. Let out the rope of your hope. Give somebody a hand out, a hand up, even a handshake in Jesus' name. And it won't be forgotten. And it will be rewarded. And it will produce fruit. And it will bring forth blessing. And you will deliver people into the life of the Lord. What will be the heritage of your hope in Christ and the help that you give by His Spirit? What will be the heritage of your life? When your days here are done, what will be the testimony of you? You say, my background... You don't know where I came from. Well, here was a prostitute. Here was a woman raised in idolatry. But she said, I believe in this God. And I give my life to him and my home to his people. And the heritage of her life was one in which her whole household was saved. It was salvation. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The sign of the cross over our lives. The blood of Christ over us. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. And that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, we got unexpected grace from an unexpected place. Who would have thought that a poor man who never traveled probably more than 100 miles from his home, who was born in a barn and raised in the work of his hands as a carpenter, who would have thought that that man who died on a criminal's cross would be the source of grace for every face on planet Earth? That that man is God revealed, the son of God, the son of man, the son of David. Rahab the harlot saved her whole household because she put her faith in God. And Joshua chapter 6, when all has transpired and the city has been taken, says that Joshua protected her and she lives in Israel to this day, which is one of the indicators that Joshua, at least that portion, may have been written by Joshua himself or at least was written within the lifespan of the people who saw these events. Do not let the lie of the world take hold of your mind that this word is not a historical record. It absolutely is. Now, it is not to say that I can draw the straight line to you for who exactly wrote this.
But this is not a lie. The person who wrote these words knew her and says she's still alive in our midst. And friends, she's still alive in the cloud of witnesses. She's part of the Hebrews Hall of Fame, Faith Chapter 11. But more importantly, she's in the kingdom looking down on us right now. She's alive because of faith in Jesus Christ. But not only that, you're alive because of her too. I want to introduce you to your spiritual grandmother. This woman, this Rahab, this prostitute, this harlot, this woman of faith became a father, uh, excuse me, became a mother of kings. Rahab married Salmon, and together they begot Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And from the root of Jesse sprang forth the shoot of David, who became the king of Israel, who became King David, the house of David, and the son of David is even the son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What happens through your faith? What happens through you? Jesus Christ becomes visible to the world through how you believe in him. Rahab's rope let the spies out the window into saving safety for Israel. If that was all that was accomplished in the episode of history in this moment, that would be a marvelous miracle of God. But so much more came out of it than even she could ever have mentioned. Because if Rahab's rope saved them, Rahab's hope was in the Savior of us all. And he came to this earth through her. Not only does that demonstrate just how far down God came, it also demonstrates how far up he wants to lift you. High up to the highest heavens with saving grace for us all. Let's give praise to the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise your mighty name, Lord God. Father, we are so humbled to think that you were willing to enter into this world through the lineage of people like us, people who sin and make mistakes, people who've been wronged and who wrong one another, and yet you show unexpected grace all over the place. Father, we come to you once again with repentant hearts. It may be that we've said this many times. It may be that it's been too long since we've said it and meant it. It may be the first time we're ever saying it. But Lord, we say, take our souls today. Hold our lives today. We give ourselves to you. Will you say that with me? Will you say, Lord Jesus, Jesus, save my soul. soul. Forgive my sins. sins. Use me me to show yourself to to the world. world. I know know that you are God God and and Savior. Hallelujah. Now, maybe you've prayed that way many, many times, but today there's a fresh new season of faith that comes down to you like a rope from the window, like a ladder from heaven, like springs in the desert. And it's the faith from God. But it may be that you've been walking away from him, that you've turned away. Take a page out of Rahab's book. Don't deny what you know God already sees, but don't let that keep you from him. Let him break down that wall. Put your hope in him. Leave behind those old ways, those old sins. If some temptation is overtaking you, it's nothing that isn't common to all humanity. Jesus was tempted in all things just like we are, but he doesn't have sin. He can take away yours. In fact, he already has. All he's asking is that you'll believe, that you'll believe that when he comes, the sign of blood, his blood on your life 
will be enough to save you and your household because the promise is to you and to all your household. Maybe you've never prayed that way before, but today you prayed that way. And I want you to know, friend, the Lord receives you today. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done against you, no matter where you come from, the God of earth and heaven, the God of all things, says, you call on my name, you confess what you believe in your heart, with your mouth, and you are saved. Salvation comes from God. That's what the name Jesus means. And you can take him at his word. Confess it. It's his undeniable word of unmistakable grace and unwavering power. Amen.